Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. And we want to warn you that sometimes the quirky Good Samaritan next door who volunteers for all the fundraisers and safety programs is actually the monster you need to watch out for. In the 80s, the people of Hyde Park neighborhood in Kansas City never suspected a serial killer was living among them. Jerry Howell was a 19-year-old kid living in Kansas City, Missouri with his dad, Paul Howell. Jerry was entering adulthood already a little troubled. He was deep into drugs and alcohol and was frequently arrested for minor offenses. Jerry's dad, Paul, managed a booth at the Westport Flea Market and Jerry would often accompany him to help out. Jerry formed a friendship with another merchant there named Bob Berdella. He owned a booth called Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, which sold odd pieces of art, jewelry, and antiques from around the world. Initially, Jerry and his friends would make fun of Bob for being gay, but over time they became close friends, drinking together and hanging out regularly. Though there was quite an age gap between them, with Bob being in his mid-30s, Jerry found Bob interesting and a little bit weird. (laughs) Jerry confided to Bob that sometimes he and his friends would prostitute themselves to make a little extra cash. Bob tried to guide the young troublemaker through his legal troubles, even loaning him money from time to time. Well, being that prostitution was illegal back in the 80s, I wouldn't say that Bob was actually helping Jerry with anything. Who knows? I mean, he could have just offered him a job. In July of 1984, Jerry had owed Bob some money for a while now and had been evading the man's questions whenever the topic came up. As time passed, it seemed less and less likely that Jerry was going to pay the debt. On July 5th, Bob arrived at Jerry's house to pick him up for a dance contest they were attending in Merriam. Jerry, naive of his friend's true motives, got in the car but never made it to the dance contest. Once in the car, Bob started offering Jerry alcohol and Valium and drove around killing time until Jerry no longer knew what was happening. He took Jerry back to his house and injected him with a dog tranquilizer before tying him to his bed. See, Bob bred chow chow dogs and had collected plenty of animal sedatives for just such an occasion. While Jerry was unconscious, Bob lived out his secret fantasies. He stripped Jerry naked and spent time admiring his body. For the next 28 hours, Bob inflicted every sexual act he could think of on Jerry. He then moved on to experimenting with items he found around his house to assault Jerry. Oh my gosh, as if injecting him with dog tranquilizer wasn't enough. Right? Alcohol, Valium, and tranquilizers? That's a seriously dangerous combination. In 28 hours? He couldn't have stayed knocked out that long. Whenever Jerry would regain consciousness enough to beg for mercy and ask why he was doing this to him, Bob would quickly give him more sedatives to put him back under. Bob even went to work while Jerry was restrained back at his home. When he returned from work, Bob had thought up all new ideas on how to cause his captive agony. This horrific ordeal only ended when Jerry accidentally died the day after he'd been abducted. Bob wasn't sure if Jerry had choked on his own vomit from being gagged so long or if the tranquilizers had stopped his breathing. 
After a brief and failed attempt at CPR, a disappointed Bob lifted up his now-dead Jerry and dragged him to the basement. I don't know what he thought was going to be the outcome of torturing someone and giving them sedatives that aren't even meant for humans. Right? Though I don't think someone who enjoys torturing people could be that beat up about their victim dying. Except maybe that he lost his plaything. So he took the body to the basement and then what? He hung the body from the ceiling over a pot and climbed back upstairs to search for his set of cooking knives. Bob drained the blood from the victim's body like a butcher would in a slaughterhouse by cutting open the jugular and inner elbow veins and leaving it hanging upside down. He left the body hanging overnight, returning the next morning to finish cutting it up with a chainsaw and bone knives. He disposed of the body in dog food bags wrapped in larger black bags and left the bags outside on the curb for the garbage collectors. What the hell? How did he even know how to do that? It's crazy, right? Who thinks of that? Those garbage collectors had no idea they were helping dispose of a body. Like, this guy is into more than weird sexual fantasies. He's twisted. Jerry's dad filed a missing persons report, and Bob was extensively questioned by police as the last known person to be with him when he disappeared. He denied having anything to do with the disappearance, but the police had suspicions and put him under surveillance. They were unable to find any solid evidence linking him to Jerry's disappearance, and the case went cold. At some point in the couple of years before taking Jerry, he had begun seeing male prostitutes. He offered them a place to stay in exchange for chores and sexual favors. To the neighborhood, who had no idea of the sexual nature of their relationship, it seemed like his motives was to help them straighten out their lives. Um, look, I'm not against sex work. So if someone offers you room and board in exchange for sex and you agree, so be it. However, I have a feeling this guy isn't going to hold to that agreement. People just seem to trust him for some reason. How was this guy perceived by his neighbors? Bob was considered an odd yet helpful and civic-minded individual. Bob assisted in the local crime prevention program and became their chairman in the early 1980s. He even initiated and encouraged a neighborhood watch program. Bob was very involved in all kinds of community events and even represented his neighborhood at fundraising events for a local public television station. The neighbors never would have guessed that he was anything but a generous do-gooder. Well, little did they know. Right? How crazy would it be to learn a neighbor you thought was such a great member of the community was actually a sick, twisted monster? I mean, I seriously can't believe this guy was in a crime prevention program. (laughs) It just goes to show that you really never know your neighbors, and you just know what they're willing to show you. Yeah, so on April 10th, 1985, a 23-year-old drifter named Robert Sheldon showed up on Bob's doorstep. Robert had often bummed in Bob's house when he passed through Kansas City. On the day in question, Robert once again showed up and asked to stay. Bob agreed. Although Robert was responsible for paying rent, Bob came to consider him an inconvenience. He was not physically attracted to Robert, but chose to drug and hold him captive anyway. On April 12th, when Bob came home from work to find Robert drunk, Bob didn't have anything against Robert, but saw him as an easy target to play out his newfound obsession. Robert was drugged with sedatives like Jerry and held captive in the second floor bedroom for three days. 
He endured horrible torture, such as drain cleaner swabbed in his left eye, which blinded him, needles inserted beneath his fingertips, and binding his wrists with piano wire to intentionally damage the nerves in his hands. And he filled his ears with caulking so he couldn't hear. Since Bob didn't find him attractive, he didn't rape Robert. He instead experimented with torture in an almost scientific fashion. Yeah, nothing about this torture seems sexual. Like, can you imagine someone sticking needles under your fingertips? Who even thinks about that? It's like a bad horror movie. And binding his wrist with piano wire? Whatever happened to good old-fashioned rope? (laughs) (laughs) Three days after Bob had begun holding Robert captive, workmen were scheduled to come work on the roof. Out of fear that Robert might be discovered, Bob decided to suffocate Robert by placing a plastic sack over his head, which he then tightened with a piece of rope. He later dissected Robert's body in the third floor bathroom and buried his head in the backyard. I'm sure the workmen coming wouldn't be thinking about what's going on in this house. That's not a normal thought that comes to anyone's mind. But since they would be working on the roof, they might see him through a window or hear screaming or something. So does he just continue on with this or is this a wake up call? Actually, Bob was really starting to feel like he was getting the hang of things now. It was around this time that he suddenly stopped going to work. He had found his passion and wanted to dedicate all of his time to it. All he had to do now was wait for his next opportunity. And he didn't have to wait long. On June 22, 1985, Mark Wallace sought shelter in Bob's shed during a thunderstorm. Mark had previously done some yard work for Bob and figured he wouldn't mind. Bob found the 20-year-old man sleeping in the shed and invited him inside. Don't go. It's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) He was just trying to get out of the storm. That poor guy had no idea what he was walking into. Just when these men think that they found a safe place to go to, he snatches it away. Bob commented that Mark looked tense and depressed and volunteered to inject him with chlorpromazine saying it would calm him down and help him relax. Mark willingly accepted the offer, and 30 minutes later, he was tied to the bed in the second-floor bedroom. Mark's torture lasted almost 24 hours, during which Bob applied alligator clips to his nipples to facilitate electrical shocks. The sexual assault and physical torture were now firmly connected in Bob's mind. Next, he started experimenting with hypodermic needles, by inserting them into various muscles on Mark's back. One hour after the needle experiment began, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs and the lack of oxygen from the gag. His body was then dismembered and disposed of like the others. Alligator clips? Yeah, they're like little clamps with interlocking teeth for better gripping, like many versions of jumper cables. I'm sorry, but where did these people get these supplies? None of this is sold at the local Walmart. Actually, they have them all over the place, especially Amazon. They just aren't meant to be used on people. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so on September 26th, 1985, Bob met an old acquaintance named Walter James Ferris at a gay bar. James was 20 years old and had fallen on some hard times, and he asked Bob if he could stay at his place for a while. Bob said, of course, and drove him home with him. As soon as they arrived home, Bob drugged him with crushed tranquilizers that he mixed into some food. He tied him to the bed as he had done with the others. 
Along with frequent rape and other forms of sexual assault, Bob continued to experiment with his torture methods. He repeatedly administered 7,700 volt electrical shocks to James's shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes at a time, as well as acupuncture via hypodermic needle to the neck and genitals. James gradually became delirious, but Bob continued his physical and sexual assaults until James was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds at a time. Bob noted that James was experiencing very delayed breathing and decided it was time to stop his experiments on James. Unfortunately, that didn't mean let him go. Bob dismembered and disposed of James in his now perfected way. I hate this guy. I know, me too. Every new person he takes makes me hate him more. How many men is he going to take advantage of? Well, again, a missing persons report was filed and the trail led back to Bob Berdella. After giving his initial statement to police, he refused to talk further without a lawyer present. They again put him under surveillance, again to no avail. Bob had his lawyer threaten to file harassment charges against police unless their questioning and surveillance of him ceased and the police were forced to back off. Bob was smart. He knew he had to be careful of the police's suspicions. He held off from continuing his hobby for almost a year until he could be sure that no one was watching. But even as careful as he was, Bob couldn't pass up a perfect opportunity when it fell into his lap. Ugh. Right? He just keeps getting away with it. So what poor soul is next? <laughs> well, on June 17, 1986, Bob ran into 21-year-old Todd Stoops at a local park. Todd was a former male prostitute who Bob had known for years. Bob had let Todd and his wife live with him on multiple occasions. Bob had always been extremely attracted to Todd, but since he wasn't gay, he'd never acted on it. But now he could do something about the sexual frustration he always felt around Todd. He invited Todd to lunch to catch up, and Todd happily agreed. Once there, Bob drugged Todd and kept him trapped in his house for weeks while repeatedly raping and sexually assaulting him. He felt different about Todd than the others, and he more gradually attempted to turn Todd into a submissive sex slave. In an effort to make him a more compliant sex slave, Bob tried to blind him through electrical shocks to the eyes. Todd would scream horribly during his torture and rapes, so Bob tried unsuccessfully to silence him by injecting drain cleaner into his larynx. Did he study anatomy? I don't understand how he knows all of this, and why not blind him like he did the other men? Why shock his eyes? I think he just liked experimenting. He wanted to find new, more effective ways to hurt these guys. He's just evil. Yeah. During the second week of his capture, Todd asked Bob for a soft drink and a sandwich. When Bob refused, Todd burst into tears, which irritated Bob. He expressed his irritation by assaulting Todd, but he was so aggressive with it, he ruptured Todd's anal wall with his fist causing bleeding and discharge. He couldn't exactly take Todd to a hospital, so he did nothing to treat the wound and let it fester. All he asked for was food and he flipped out? He didn't even ask to go free. The least you could do is feed the man. <laughs> right? It doesn't take much to annoy Bob, though. What he did to that man with his fist makes me feel sick. 
it's clear that he doesn't see these men as human, just like rag dolls to do whatever he pleases with them. So, potentially out of remorse, Bob came around and tried to feed Todd ice cream and soup. Although, by then, Todd wasn't able to keep anything down. By the final day of his captivity, Todd was so weak that he was unable to breathe in a sitting position. On July 1st, 1986, Todd died due to septic shock caused by his ruptured anal wall. Bob took another break after Todd. We don't know why, but he didn't abduct anyone else for almost another year. He did continue to have consensual sex with male prostitutes that included bondage and torture between victims, so maybe that was enough for a while. I don't know. I'm not convinced that he didn't harm one of those prostitutes, and we just don't know about it. I mean, prostitutes are less likely to come forward and report it if he did horrible stuff to them. I just don't believe he's capable of not doing this for a whole year. It might have been enough. Until it wasn't. In the spring of 1987, Bob became friends with a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson. This casual friendship began when Larry entered Bob's shop one day and they chatted at length about how, as a child, Larry had held an interest in witchcraft. Larry lived with Bob for a short time after that and performed chores around the house as a means of paying rent. Larry went on his way. But on June 23rd, Larry called Bob from jail needing help. Bob bailed Larry out and offered to let him stay at his place again for a while. Bob hadn't actually planned on making Larry one of his victims, but that night Larry began jokingly bragging about his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. The casual admission set off a rage in Bob, and he knew Larry was going to be one of his projects. Bob encouraged Larry to get drunk before injecting him with chlorpromazine and moving him down to the basement. In my opinion, I'm sure Larry would have rather stayed in jail than get bailed out by a man that was going to torture him. If only he had known and called someone else. Like anybody else. (laughs) So, (laughs) So what happened after he took him to the basement? Are you sure you want to know? I mean, I feel like it's a given, but give it to me anyways. Okay. (laughs) In the basement, he bound Larry's hands above his head and connected the rope to a brick column. He didn't ease into the torture this time. He immediately injected Larry's larynx with drain cleaner. He then brought in an electrical transformer to the basement to get to work. At some point during the torture, Bob broke both of Larry's hands with a metal bar. After five days of torture, Bob liked that Larry was by far the most cooperative of his victims to date. Bob decided Larry had earned his trust, and as a reward, he would move him to the second floor bedroom where he could be more comfortable. Bob informed Larry that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict quite as much torture on him. Okay, this reminds me of the House of Horrors case. Just because you move someone to a more comfortable location does not lessen the torture that they have to endure. Right? Why do these guys think this is a reward? (laughs) It's for them, not the victim. I believe it helps them feel less guilty as they slowly perceive their captives as more human. Yes. Throughout the latter part of his six weeks of captivity, Larry trained himself to sleep without moving in order to not antagonize Bob. After six weeks of sexual and physical torture, something snapped in Larry. 
He bit deeply into Bob's penis before screaming that he could not continue to tolerate being treated like this. Bob killed Larry by first bludgeoning him into unconsciousness with a tree limb, then suffocating him with a bag over his head. Leaving a dead Larry in the guest room, Bob drove to the hospital to receive treatment for his wound. Bob filed an assault report from his hospital room in which he alleged a man named Larry Pearson had deeply bitten his penis during oral sex, causing a serious laceration. Are you dumb? Like, you're literally throwing yourself (laughs) under the bus. (laughs) It was definitely a weird choice, but maybe the hospital was suspicious of the injury and he had to act like a victim to throw off suspicion. If he was smart, though, he would have just made up a fake name. Totally. (laughs) So Larry's body was later dismembered in the basement, and his head was initially stored in a plastic bag in Bob's freezer. He retrieved Robert Sheldon's skull from the backyard and displayed it in his home. He then put Larry's head in the backyard where Robert's head had been, which Bob apparently saw as a place of honor. There is nothing about what you did to anyone that anybody would find honorable seriously delusional that's just gross and creepy (laughs) (laughs) another year later on march 29th 1988 22 year old chris bryson a male prostitute was hitchhiking when bob picked him up and solicited him for sex chris was taken back to bob's house where he was promptly struck with a metal bar and bound with rope Bob then used a needle to inject some kind of drug into Chris's back. Chris was then subjected to the same torture and sexual abuse methods as Bob's previous victims. Bob gagged Chris, shocked his testicles with electricity, and swabbed his eyes with ammonia. Bob told Chris that he was going to become a sex slave. Chris decided to cooperate with his torturer in the hopes of avoiding further injury. Chris knew how to gain Bob's trust, eventually persuading him to tie his hands in front of him instead of to the bed. How many ways is Bob going to try to blind these guys? Just stick to one method, my god. (laughs) It's seriously demented. It sounds like Chris is trying to do everything, though, in his power to gain Bob's trust. Bob warned Chris, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. He showed Chris Polaroid pictures of men who appeared to be deceased, with the explanation that these had been previous men he had unsuccessfully attempted to collect as his sex slaves. He told Chris that he had no intention of ever allowing him to leave his property, and that if Chris became a nuisance, he would either be subjected to greater levels of torture or simply killed. Over the next four days, Chris thought of nothing but escaping, and then one day, Bob accidentally left a box of matches in the room when he left for work. Chris grabbed them and burned through his ropes. On April 2nd, Chris jumped from the second-story window, breaking a bone in his foot in the process, and ran for his life. He was wearing a dog collar and nothing else, causing neighbors to call police. He spotted a meter reader walking across the other side of the street and ran to him, shouting for help and to call the police. They led Chris to the house he had been approaching, where the homeowners promptly called the police, who arrived minutes later. Good job, Chris. I believe if he had endured more torture like the other men, mentally, he couldn't have done any of that. 
He was smart, creative, and very, very lucky. Please tell me that this was Bob's undoing. Oh, yeah. Chris told police a tale of four days of torture, sodomy, and terror at the hands of the man who lived there, Bob Berdella. He told police that he had been hitchhiking and a man driving a brown Toyota had picked him up near midnight. The man took him home and subjected him to days of torture and sodomy, drugging and electrical shocks and bondage. As Chris spoke, the officers also noted that in addition to the dog collar and broken foot, the man had red, swollen eyes and visible scars and welts across his entire body. Two officers were told to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property as Chris was driven to the Menorah Medical Center, accompanied by a third officer for treatment as the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a formal search warrant of the property. I mean, this Chris guy knew so much information since Bob showed him so much evidence. If it had been anyone else, who knew if the police would find out that there were more victims out there? Bob was clearly too arrogant to think anyone might escape, so he didn't even bother trying to hide anything. Unfortunately, Chris played such an important role in having some justice for some of these victims, including himself. Although bruised, drugged, and abused, Chris was luckier than six other victims of the monster who would soon be known as the Kansas City Butcher. Those young men left the house chopped into pieces and stuffed into dog food bags that were dumped in the garbage. Later questioned in greater detail at the Kansas City Police Department, Chris said he had been held against his will by the occupant of 4315 Charlotte Street, who had subjected him to four days of repeated sexual abuse, humiliation, and torture. Chris also told police that his captor had shown him Polaroid images of men who had appeared to be dead. That afternoon, Bob Berdilla was arrested, but he declined to allow officers inside his home. So a short time later, their previously requested search warrant was approved and they began their search anyway. Sharon will tell us what they found when we return. Police swarmed in, where they found an abundance of horrors inside this unassuming house. Backing up Chris's claims of having been restrained and tortured in the second floor bedroom, investigators found burnt rope attached to the post at the foot of the bed. Also in the room was an electrical transformer with wires leading to the bed. A metal tray containing syringes, small bottles, and apparently containing prescription drugs, swaps, and eye drops were also close to the bed. Also found in the room were a long iron pipe, various lengths of rope, and a leather belt. Opening a second-story closet, they discovered a human skull as well as a human vertebrae, marked from where they had been cut with a bone saw. When they ventured into the basement, they found large barrels stained with blood, as well as the personal belongings of two missing people and a sack of Polaroid photos depicting naked men being sexually assaulted and tortured. 334 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of more than 20 different men were found stowed away in various locations within the house. These pictures showed Chris Bryson and several other men both in life and death, and many of the images had been taken as subjects were actively being tortured. Oh my god, that's a lot of photos. He may not have been killing all of them, but he was torturing an insane amount of people. How did he possibly hide this so long? I mean, I'm trying to figure out how the word didn't get out. 
if most of these men were prostitutes, you would assume that they were part of the same circle. Maybe some people didn't believe the rumors. People seemed to really trust this guy. After determining that at least one of the men in the photographs was dead, the authorities dug up the backyard. They discovered another human head buried in the yard, partly decomposed. Dental records confirmed that this was all that was left of the missing Wichita man, Larry Pearson. The skull from inside the house belonged to a California man named Robert Sheldon. Both a hacksaw and a chainsaw were also discovered in the basement of the property. Both items were soiled with bloodstains, flesh, and pubic hairs. Luminal tests revealed that the floor of the basement and the two plastic trash barrels were extensively bloodstained. He barely bothered to clean up. That place must have been disgusting. You know that house smelt like death. Right? Sounds like they found plenty of evidence to use against him. Of course they did. The most important and disturbing item found in the house was a notebook, meticulously detailing the abduction, torture, rape, and murder of six young men in the area. The entries of this notebook were written in his own made-up shorthand. For example, EK or EKG referred to torture administered to his captives with electrical shocks, whereas several other entries contained the body part where he administered the abuse or torture to his victims. Like two and a half KET NK plus shoulder to indicate that he injected 2.2 cubic centimeters of ketamine into his victim's neck and shoulder. Keeping detailed records like this is some kind of valuable science experiment? What a sick monster. I'm not surprised. I wonder if he thought someone out there would find this information he collected valuable, you know, other than the police. <laughs> You're probably right. Some kind of manual to future serial killers. (laughs) Well, before the search of the property was over, the Kansas City Police Department had assembled a special task force of 11 detectives and one sergeant to focus exclusively on the Bordellas case. This task force extensively researched his history, discovering that he was well known amongst Kansas City male prostitutes having earned a reputation for preying on transient young men. Several of these male prostitutes had become reluctant to accept him as a client, both because of his penchant for drugging, injecting, and torturing his sexual partners, but also because he had long been considered a suspect in the disappearance of Jerry Howell and James Ferris. James Ferris's wife identified him in several of the photos found at the property, some taken after her husband's death. Paul Howell formally identified one picture of a young man hanging upside down in the basement as his son. Several other Polaroid images were of still unidentified young men, and several detectives were assigned the task of identifying each individual and determining if he was dead or alive. If alive, they wanted to know the circumstances surrounding the picture. That's a lot of people to track down. Like we said before, if he hadn't documented it so carefully, those families may have never known what happened to their loved ones. I know, but what family members want to hear all of the torture inflicted on their loved ones? That's a lot to hear. Agreed, but at least they don't have to wonder. Was Bob in any of these photos? Well, several of these images depicted a section of the body of an individual who had taken the picture. Bob was ordered by a judge to pose nude for a series of photographs so that portions of his body could be photographed in a precise angle depicted within these images for comparison with the original images. 
Bob refused and was charged with contempt of court. Oh, you don't like people taking pictures of you? How ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Did they learn anything from the people they tracked down? One of these individuals traced to a young man named Freddie Kellogg. He was able to tell detectives that he and several other young men had lodged with Bob since the early 1980s, and that Bob had been in a habit of drugging his house guests before engaging in sex with them, regardless of whether they consented or not. Freddie also admitted that a condition of living with Bob was that they had to persuade young men whom Bob found attractive to attend parties so that Bob could drug them. Freddie was able to name three of the individuals in the Polaroids being Todd Stoops, Robert Sheldon, and Larry Wayne Pearson. Wow. I really do understand that those men were probably terrified to come forward when he was doing this to them and making them bring him more victims. But if someone had spoken up, maybe a few lives could have been saved. If one person would have submitted an anonymous report, they could have ended this. Exactly. What about those photos they couldn't identify? Police released seven photos to the media of men that they were unable to identify from the hundreds of photos found in Bob's house. Two men separately called into the Kansas City Police Department to state that one of the men depicted in the photos released to the media was a former high school friend of theirs named Mark Wallace. When a detective contacted Mark's sister, She told them that her brother had been missing since mid-1985. One by one, they tracked down the more than 20 men in those photos. In the end, they determined that six of the men were dead and the rest had been lucky to escape with their lives. Good for police for tracking down each and every person. I'm sure it was a disturbing and tedious job. Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised. Authorities are known to not take prostitutes gone missing seriously, However, maybe it was different because some were just regular old guys that just happened to trust somebody. Well, once you have a mounting death toll, you have to take them all seriously. Hopefully they nailed him for everything. Well, in spite of the overwhelming and gruesome evidence found in Bob's home, he was initially only charged with sodomy, felonous restraint, and first-degree assault. It took time for the authorities to realize the extent of his crimes, because the majority of his victims' bodies couldn't be found. Although police extensively searched for the remains of all Bob's victims throughout their initial investigation into his crimes, Bob's later confession confirmed that he dismembered bodies of all six victims and had stowed them in trash bags and taken them to a landfill. Consequently, their bodies were never recovered. His disposal method was so effective, he could have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for his detailed logs and Chris escaping. That's a terrifying thought. Well, I'm just glad he was dumb enough to write it down. So wait, he wasn't even charged with murder then? Bob would be formally charged with murder by dismemberment of Larry Wayne Pearson in July after the head was discovered in the backyard and it was formally identified as Larry's. Prosecutors had gathered sufficient circumstantial evidence to accompany the physical evidence at this point. Within two weeks of being indicted in Larry's murder, Bob pleaded guilty in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. Despite initially not pleading guilty to the remaining five murder charges, Bob ultimately negotiated a plea bargain with the prosecutors to avoid the death penalty and these remaining charges as well. 
In this plea bargain, Bob agreed to confess in graphic detail as to whom he had killed and what exactly had been done to each victim, how he had killed them, and what he had done with their bodies. Over three days, Bob told prosecutors the intricate details of each of his victims. These confessions were given to prosecutors in December of 1988. In return for his cooperation, the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty, to the dismay of the families of several of the victims who favor the death penalty. Ugh. I get why prosecutors made that deal. With no bodies, they felt they needed his confession. But I feel for those families. I'm not sure how I feel about the death penalty. However, if I was one of the victim's family members, I couldn't imagine having it any other way. I'm with you. I'm sure the families wanted revenge. Probably the community, too. Members of the public were prohibited from attending his hearing, with only family members of the victims and news reporters permitted access. In response to these guilty pleas, Judge Meyer sentenced him to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Upon being sentenced, Bob was transferred to the Missouri State Penitentiary to commence his life sentence. He would later be temporarily placed in protective custody due to the concerns for his safety. Even in prison, Bob was difficult. He filed lawsuit after lawsuit that Jackson County paid tens of thousands of dollars to defend. At least five times he sued lawyers who had represented him, and he enjoyed taunting inmates, resulting in protective custody. He just doesn't quit. What a piece of crap. Yeah, I'm sure his lawsuits went far from behind (laughs) bars. (laughs) Did he ever explain himself or seem remorseful at all? In the years following his conviction... Bob did an interview with the Missouri-based television station KCPT. He attempted to restore his image as a sensitive citizen who had simply made mistakes in committing his crimes. He further claimed that he had been unfairly demonized by the media. He passionately denied media rumors that he had been engaged in any form of Satanism or that he had sold sections of his victims' bodies at a flea market booth. There were even rumors that he cooked and served some of his victims as food at his shop, though there was no actual evidence to suggest that that was the case. Despite his claims that the media had falsely demonized him, he had never expressed any degree of remorse for his actions and tearlessly referred to his victims as play toys in the same interview. Bob referred to himself as, and I quote, the neighbor next door who reached a point in his life where he had to do monstrous acts That's not the same thing as being a monster, end quote. He even went as far as to place the blame for his murder spree entirely on police for not stopping him after his first murder. Wow, seriously? He's trying to convince people that he's just a nice guy who made a few mistakes? You tortured, raped, and murdered people. That makes you a monster. I mean, if he had accidentally shot one of them, sure. However, you tortured these men for days at a time. Yeah, that's no accident. Did he ever say why he did this? Apart from his sick fantasies about sex slaves, that is? Well, although one victim, Mark Wallace, had been an act of opportunity, Bob claims that his other five victims had been captured after he had been unsuccessful in trying to steer them away from their harmful lifestyles. He states that he had simply become frustrated at the failure of his efforts and their lack of willingness to turn their lives around. Nonetheless claimed that he had tried to prevent any of his victims from developing any form of malnutrition or infection by occasionally administrating antibiotics or nutrients by injection. 
Ah, what a kind soul. Just trying to help people. Give me a break. This is not the help they were told they were going to receive. You should have been upfront with them if you wanted to use alligator clips on them, <laughs> inject them with tranquilizer, and blind them. At least give them all the information and let them make that choice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would have had a hard time getting volunteers for that. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm assuming he had some kind of mental illness. Not that it excuses anything that he did. According to published reports, Bob suffered from a depressive personality disorder and was also a diagnosed sexual sadist who gained extreme sexual excitement from inflicting humiliation, pain, and torture like he had done to his victims. Bob claimed that the movie that he had seen as a teenager called The Collector had left a major impression on him. He said after the shock and disgust he claimed to have initially experienced after killing his first victim, the movie had resurfaced in his memory and subsequently became a motivating force of his actions. This is such a common and ridiculous defense killers use. Movies are entertainment. I watch horror movies all the time and would never torture or kill someone. As much crime as me and you read each week for our own entertainment and this show, we don't sit there and take notes from it to use it on another human. <laughs> Let me guess. He probably had a messed up childhood too, right? Again, not an excuse. Robert Bordella Jr. was the son of Robert Sr. and Alice Bordella, a strict Catholic couple who demanded the same religious devotion of their children. The young Bob was intelligent, but a loner who rarely played outside and didn't really have any friends. He suffered a large amount of bullying during his childhood because he had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses for severe nearsightedness. Bob was not athletic, but his younger brother Daniel had a natural talent for various sports at an early age. The boy's father valued sports and physical power, so he viewed his older son's lack of interest in sports as a sign of failure. Occasionally, his father physically and emotionally abused his children, beating them with a leather strap. Spanking and beating with a belt or leather strap was fairly normal practice for parenting back then. While horrible and damaging, most people don't become killers because of it. If that was the case, I'd be running rampant right now. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we know? When Bob reached puberty, he discovered that he was gay, which he initially kept a closely guarded secret. He did not become open about his sexuality for many years. When he was 16, his father had a heart attack and died at the age of 39, which he took extremely hard. A few months after his father's death, his mother remarried. This act fueled a lot of rage in Bob, who viewed it as a form of betrayal against his father. In 1967, Bob graduated from high school and started attending the Kansas City Art Institute. Though he displayed wonderful artistic talent, he quickly got caught up in drug use and low-level drug dealing. It was also during this time that he began torturing and killing animals. Torturing animals. Big red psychopathic flag right there. It's always the ones that have tortured animals in the beginning. Yep. Did people know this about him? Well, on three particular occasions, Bob experimented on live animals during art class performances. The final straw for the college was when he murdered a dog in front of the crowd for art. The college board decided that was enough. Bob was kicked out of the Kansas City Art Institute, which caused him a significant amount of shame and anger. 
After parting ways with the art college, he worked as a chef and gained a reputation for having a real talent. At this time, he began avidly collecting artifacts from around the world, leading him to quit working as a cook and opened his store called Bob Bazaar's Bazaar. That's not art, dude. His collecting started with artifacts and escalated to people. If any of you want to confirm what art is and what art is not, please call your local museum or do a quick Google search. Please avoid the dark web. Their art isn't normal. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So what happened to all his collections anyway? Part of his plea deal was that he would get to keep all of his property. In November of 1988, he auctioned off his vast collection of artifacts and furniture from jail with the intention that all the proceeds raised at the auctions be used to pay off his amounting legal fees. The auction attracted considerable national interest, attracting telephone bids from across the United States. Although many items sold for less than the expected price, by the end of the first day's auctioneering alone, more than $60,000 had been raised. In January of 1992, Todd Stoops' mother won a $5 billion judgment against him for her son's wrongful death. It exceeded anything Bob could pay, but it prevented him from keeping any money that he might be making from writing a book or selling the rights to his story. Good for her. Killers should not be able to profit in any way. It's bad enough that he got to raise money through selling his collection. He played himself. (laughs) Please tell me he's still locked up. In 1992, Bardella contacted a counselor he had met when he was first incarcerated, Reverend Roger Coleman. He informed Coleman of his distress due to the staff at Missouri State Penitentiary withholding his heart medication. In late summer of that same year, he wrote his mother in Ohio that he was feeling yucky. On October 8th of 1992, Bob began complaining about chest pains. He died that day at the age of 43 a little more than four years after going to prison. Shortly after, the judge at his sentencing was informed of his death. In his response, he sarcastically remarked, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. The wife of one of the victims said, the guy didn't suffer long enough and we didn't get him executed, but God did. Hopefully the prison wasn't really withholding necessary medication, but I can't say I feel any sadness over his death. That judge is brutally hilarious, though. (laughs) Oh, I 100% agree (laughs) with the judge on this one. (laughs) What about the house he did all this in? Local millionaire Del Denmar bought most of Bardella's possessions, including his house, which he eventually demolished. As the work began, a reporter asked a worker what he thought would turn up. It's a strange feeling, the worker said. You kind of wonder what you might find when you take out a wall panel. But they didn't find anything. In January of 2020, a relative of one of his victims contacted a Kansas City news station in complete disgust when they stumbled across a website selling what appeared to be authentic crime scene items. Everything from the hacksaw to the fireplace ashes, the original evidence bag is available. The highest priced item is a $15,000 camera seized from the home along with two pictures of an unidentified male. That's sick. What kind of person would want that kind of stuff? Sadly, we know there's someone out there that does want it. If you know someone who collects things from serial killers' crime scenes, I don't know if that's someone you should be around. I'm not okay (laughs) with that. 
The relatives who contacted the news station questioned how evidence ever left the Kansas City Police Department's possession in the first place. There are civil procedures that require the release of old evidence in cases that have been closed. The department certainly does not support or condone murderabilia, but court records show that the victim's family members sued Bob Berdella's estate in civil court and KCPD was forced to turn over evidence in the civil procedures since the criminal case was closed. A department representative said, The fact that things like this show up is not surprising, but I wouldn't want to see something like that if it were me or if I was one of the family members. I'd be pissed. I definitely would not be okay with that. That's a form of taunting the victim's family, in my opinion. Agreed. For whatever reason, Bob Berdella never attained the national notoriety of killers like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy. These days, he is largely forgotten outside of Kansas City. When it comes to cases like this, we should strive to remember the victims, but forget the names of the monsters. We should learn what we can in order to help prevent crimes like this in the future without glorifying the horrible people behind them. If only Bob Bardella's neighbors hadn't assumed he was just an odd but harmless guy. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there is Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram, at Crime and Conjure Podcasts, for our question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? This week, we have Blue Kyanite, which helps keep people from messing with your head. This is a really important one for anybody who's experiencing manipulation, coercion, bullying, or lying. Blue kyanite helps to keep you grounded and keeps your mind clear of self-doubt or second-guessing. It also helps you read between the lines and be aware of what's really being communicated by others. I feel like I would take this stone on any dates you may have or if there's someone that you've been starting to trust and want to make sure that your intentions are pure. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.